my favorite collection of pictures of us was the combined choir and band trip that we took to Washington, D.C. Yes, that was we, the end of high school. We all looked our absolute best that on that trip. Oh, God, I, I didn't. Oh, my God. No, really? I, I looked... I was trying to pull off a hat that didn't work, and I thought my coat looked like a cool trench coat, and it was really just like a tan jacket. I thought you looked cool. I had cool. no bangs. I was, like, not thriving. Although, at the time, I did think I was thriving. So. You had that cute hat on for most of the trip. Yeah, it didn't work. <laughs> I was going through that hard hair straightener phase, so I had, like, that intensely straight blonde hair. I didn't. I don't even look like myself. And yeah, I forgot you did go through a hair straightening phase. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I used to color my hair with Crayola Magic Markers on purpose. Oh, my God. That's right. That was also when you had your eyebrows completely bleached. <laughs> 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 yes, I did. <laughs> For a long time and through college, I used to sit in my sad college dorm anxiously bleaching my eyebrows on purpose. <laughs> I don't even know what my natural hair color looks like anymore. Really? You're dyeing your hair now? Yeah, my hair's dyed right now. It's got purple in the back. Oh, uh, right, right, faded. right. And then um, it was black on top. So this is not terribly far off from my natural hair color, but my natural hair color is definitely much more of a golden brown. Right. On our crappy video call, it looks close enough to your oh, traditional yeah. brown to me. <laughs> and I can't see the purple at all. I can't see anything, really. You're just a microphone. (laughs) (laughs) Should we get started? Yes, we should. Hey, I'm... (laughs) I'm a grown-up adult Rowan Hall. And I'm an old lady who wants to bake you cookies and make sure she tucks you into bed, Tracy Harrison. And this is the Willing and Fable podcast, a podcast where we talk about ancient myths, local legends, our shared millennial history, and why stories have staying power. (laughs) (laughs) Is it in that order? Do we have to go in that order specifically, or can we? No, it's a mix and match situation. It's like a paper doll with many outfits. Oh, I love it. So before we even get into the topic of our episode, Tracy, we actually have to talk about Taylor Swift's new album, Folklore. Because I found out about this album when my friend Joe specifically reached out to me to say that (laughs) we have to talk about it on our podcast. Yes, this is for Joe. And also for our friend Brooke. Yes. But also for, I don't know, people that listen to Taylor Swift and listen to us. The point is this. She came out with an album called Folklore and everyone that loves us and listens to our podcast came out of the woodwork texting us. It's true. You clearly own the word folklore. Are you going to stand for this? (laughs) Which is so funny because folklore is not even in our title. It's fable. And also Taylor (laughs) Swift now owns the word folklore. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So I actually pulled a Taylor Swift quote that I really like about her album that I'm really excited about. So Taylor Swift said in a post on her Instagram, A tale that becomes folklore is one that is passed down and whispered around, sometimes even sung about. The lines between fantasy and reality blur, and the boundaries between truth and fiction become almost indiscernible. Speculation over time becomes fact. Myths, ghost stories, and fables. Fairy tales and parables. Gossip and legend. 
someone's secret written in the sky for all to behold. That was way more deep and also our podcast-based than my Instagram tends to be. So I was really excited to see that. It's a good quote. It kind of says nothing, but it sounds like it, it, it feels meaningful. Right. I also really liked that she linked gossip and legend. Yeah. It makes me think of the Iliad and the way that, you know, if you talk about something long enough and often enough, then it just grows and grows into something else. Oh, I saw a really funny video of a a woman who said that she became a historian because if you gossip about people who are long dead, you get to be scholarly about it. But really, she just (laughs) likes gossip. Oh, my God. That's delightful. Right? I thought that was amazing. So my Instagram also provided me with a text image after this Taylor Swift quote, and it was referring to storytelling as a form of medicine, meaning spiritual medicine, like, you know, oh, okay. it was a like... balm for the soul, as it were. And uh, I've been kind of ruminating, meditating, brewing on that thought. Yeah, I mean, if we're going to be kind of deep and analytical about it, yeah, oh, absolutely. Are. I can. S- oh, okay. All right. I was going to make a joke and move on. So good to know where, where we're at. No, we're in it today, Trace. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think you could easily say that story is medicine in the way that any genuine connection to someone is medicine, or in the way that an escape from reality is medicine. So I just finished reading. The third book in a series. They're not good. They're silly historical romance novels. But just having that fun escape through that story was a really good way for me to distract myself. And then on the other side, if you're sitting around a campfire and everyone's telling stories together, you're sharing stories with people that you love, it's in that sense, it's the connection with the other people that is, in my mind, more healing. It's that bonding through storytelling. So either way, yeah, you can argue story is medicine. But Right. I would also say that it is intensely human for people to want to tell their own stories and kind of verbalize their internal truths. Yeah, because, well, one, everyone just wants to be known, but you're the only one who knows what's going on inside your own head. And it feels so important because it's happening to you all the time. But everyone everyone has everything happening to them all the time. What's that word for it? Is it sonder? It's the ability to realize that other people are the main characters of their own stories and have an internal dialogue just like yours. I don't know the word for it, but I, I do know the concept, yeah. I think it's Sonder, at least on Pinterest, I think it's Sonder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's something I think about a lot. Um, mostly, I think, because, you know, we've talked about before, I love psychology and I'm also a fairly deeply empathetic person and so I always try to think about the way that other people see things the way that other people think through things especially because I know about myself I don't have the best set of skills for holding people to standards that are fair for them instead of standards that are fair for me Hmm. and so yeah it's it's something I'm working on and I've had to learn especially you know as someone who manages people at work It's not fair for me to hold everyone to my own standards when what is absolutely second nature, natural to me, has always been natural to me, might be the one thing someone else has to work really hard at, 
but that doesn't mean they don't have incredible skills somewhere else that I am currently working on. And to, to recognize people and meet them where they are goes along with just what I love doing, which is just <laughs> sitting and thinking about people and their strengths and where they can grow and how they think about things and how they view the world and how they react to things and how I can communicate with them. You're so thoughtful. I would like you to become and be my boss. Jeez. <laughs> oh, shoot. I'm my own boss. All right, Tracy, you're hired. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's a better boss than yourself, though? Although you're probably really, you're probably a pretty hard boss on yourself. My boss is a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> Your boss is a boss lady. <laughs> so the other thing that I've been thinking about is the idea of music making things sacred or music being really incorporated into what is sacred. There's a lot of music in many of the world's religions and practices. And kind of linking that to my my college education, the idea that in musicals, when something is too emotional to talk about, the characters sing it. And then when it's too emotional to just sing about, the characters dance it. Is that kind of a standard formula that you learned about in school, or is that just something you've noticed? No, no, we learned about it. And it's it's not the end-all, be-all of how all musicals are written, but it is a genuinely accepted formula so that it doesn't seem weird that characters are just randomly bursting into song. There's, there's a motivation and a, a structure behind it. And so I've been thinking about this idea that Taylor Swift, who, props to her, she got a whole album done during quarantine. Anybody who's making anything during quarantine should get a pat on the back. She's just always struck me as an insanely hard worker. Oh, yeah. Anyone who's learning anything new or making something or living. Are you giving ourselves a pat on the back because we made a podcast during quarantine? Oh, speaking of which, happy episode 11. Oh, my God. We are on episode 11. <laughs> we have sat down, researched, written, and recorded, and then edited, eventually for this one, 11 episodes mm -hmm. of, a, of a podcast. Yeah. And people are listening to it. That is insane. 20 stories because our prequel was kind of its own beast. I can't wait until we're on episode 100 and... We look back and laugh at our infantile double-digit selves. We can laugh at our double digits when we get into triple digits, but for now, I'm proud as heck of us. <laughs> all right, so Joe, Brooke, all of our dear friends, we've talked about Taylor Swift for you. I have nothing else to say about the music yet because I just started listening to the album. I will say it's more in line with my particular musical taste than many of Taylor Swift's albums, so I am excited. But this is all you get. <laughs> this is Yeah, this is all you get for now. I haven't honestly even started listening to the album yet. It just came out, but I'm excited to jump into it. So speaking of jumping into things, this week we're going to be talking to you about Death Gods. Now, when we say Death Gods, we don't mean gods of war, gods of murder, mayhem. We are talking about the guardians of the dead, these gods whose entire job is to protect the souls of the once living and who honestly get a pretty bad reputation for doing so. Yeah, people often equate these gods with the act of killing when in reality they're just doing their jobs. 
Uh, They aren't murderous gods out for vengeance. They are gods tasked with the absolutely thankless job of protecting the dead. They are essential workers. So (laughs) today we are going to give them a little thanks and tell you their stories. So Rowan, I only know, here's exactly what I know about the god you're going to talk about today. Mm -hmm. Tim mentioned him to me when I said, I need to think about a, a cool god to talk about for a god of death story. That's it. (laughs) Literally, that's the end of it. I heard Tim say the name once. So I'm really excited to learn more. Yeah, I was really interested in this story because it's one that I only knew about in reference uh, and very little else. Uh, Today, my story is of Baron Samity from the Haitian Vodou Pantheon, as well as the Louisiana Voodoo Pantheon. So I want to start off by saying that I've learned through my research that the Haitian practitioners of this religion rarely refer to the practice by name, referring instead to the people who follow or serve the Loa, which I will explain shortly. I've read various names in various spellings, including voodoo, vodou, vodoon, and many more, but today I've chosen to stick with the name voodoo for two reasons. The first, Haitian Vodou has overlap with Louisiana Voodoo, but there are differences. Because my story today is set in Louisiana, I will use the word voodoo to specify, which links to my second reason. I am very excited about this one. I read the article, Why We Can't Talk to You About Voodoo, by Brenda Marie Ospey. It was published in the Southern Literary Journal, Volume 43, Number 2, in 2011. In her writing, Ospey speaks as a follower of the voodoo religion about the trouble with tourists and others who think they have a right to learn about her practice. Ospey speaks about her experience in Louisiana, so because she uses the word voodoo, so will I. I realize that in her writing, she may have chosen the commonly known form of the word to appeal to a wider audience of outsiders who are more familiar with the phrase lowercase v voodoo that has been co-opted by Hollywood and Halloween stores. But as I am a part of that wider audience outside the practice, who is reading her article? I'm going to stick with her choice. So please note that voodoo is a religion, and like Christianity or Buddhism should be capitalized when written. It's also not interchangeable with hoodoo, a form of folk magic that originated in West Africa and is also practiced in the southern United States. I did know that voodoo and hoodoo were very different, but I didn't know about any of the rest of that. Like many religious practices, individual human beings have been known to pick and choose elements of multiple different practices. So I read sources where people may have personally taken a little bit of hoodoo into their lives and a little bit of voodoo, but that does not mean they're the same. And I think that that's why there's a little bit of a misconception, Mm -hmm. not to mention kind of the horror marketing machine that is 
you know, Halloween and the movies and all of that. I highly recommend that article I mentioned. It is so well written. As Tracy would say, chef's kiss. Mm, Chef's kiss. Love it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's explore some of the history of voodoo. This belief system originated in West Africa. In the practice, there is one supreme creator, a distant figure named Bondi. Spirits known as Loa serve this figure and interact with humans, and sometimes are linked to saints due to Catholic influence. In 1685, a law was passed that forbade the practice of African religions in colonized areas. All slave owners were thus required to, quote, Christianize the people they enslaved within eight days of their arrival. The Catholic Church supported slavery as a means of converting African citizens to what they believed was the moral right. Said to have come from French colonies in the 18th century, it was due to this suppression and the mixing of enslaved people from many cultures that voodoo became a mix of many practices, including Yoruba, Bakongo, Christianity, even European mysticism and Freemasonry. I am going to read a great quote from the Vice article from Benin to Bourbon Street, A Brief History of Louisiana Voodoo by Kim Kelly, because Kim Kelly says it best. The religion has its roots in coastal West Africa from Ghana to Nigeria, but especially prevalent in the Republic of Benin. A majority of Beninese belong to the Fon ethnic and linguistic group. The Vodun is the Fon word for spirits or gods. During the transatlantic slave trade, Benin found itself near the epicenter of the slave coast, and a huge percentage of newly arrived slaves that set foot in the French colony of Louisiana were of Fon origin. The roots of voodoo came with them. These captives brought their languages, healing practices, and religious beliefs, including the ancestor worship and elder veneration that figure predominantly in modern voodoo with them. And since French slave owners often kept families together, these traditions were preserved to a great extent. At that point in time, the settlement was still in its infancy, with rigid colonial laws still developing. The ratio of African to European settlers hovered around two to one, and New Orleans society permitted the existence of jeunes de couleur libre, free people of color, some of whom went on to become voodoo's most important figures. During this period, African culture and spirituality thrived in French Louisiana and became an integral part of the multicultural framework upon which New Orleans was built. By the time the United States outlawed the import of foreign slaves in 1808, Louisiana's African community was already firmly established, roots firmly planted in the spongy soil. That was a huge quote I recognize, but I think that gives a really succinct history of religion following people that have been enslaved to the colonies. So now that we've chatted about where voodoo comes from, I want to talk about what it's not. Voodoo gets a reputation as being dark and evil, 
in part because of the use of animal sacrifice. As many writers on the subject have pointed out before myself, Christianity, Hinduism, Judaism, and Islam have all employed the same practice at various times in various parts of the world. So there's no reason to link voodoo toward darkness any more than you would those other religions. Voodoo is also falsely linked to the brain-eating zombies we know from stories like The Walking Dead. Zombie, with no E, is a word that comes from forms of voodoo. In Haitian voodoo, a boker, who is a practitioner of voodoo that's similar to a priest, is said to have the power to bring people back from the dead and sometimes control the soulless body. So is the body the zombie with no E, or is the person who's similar to a priest? Mm, Sorry, I was confusing. The person similar to the priest is called a boker. The zombie with no E is the soulless body. I had no idea that's where the word zombie came from. And sometimes that practice is actually used as a form of punishment in some of what I read for the people that are then being turned into kind of that soulless animation. But it's not the same as The Walking Dead. There's no lust for brains. (laughs) So now I want to read a quote from Ospe's article that I mentioned earlier. She says, Firstly, there are no dolls in voodoo. That's a gimmick borrowed from European witchcraft to cheat the real tourists. Tourists apparently develop certain youthful tendencies almost as soon as they become tourists, and so are inherently attracted to doll play. This is apparently accompanied by something of a mean streak that causes them to enjoy sticking things in their dolls. And so, voodoo dolls have been built into the local tourism trade, but I can assure you, from way back when, there are not now and never have been any dolls in New Orleans voodoo. I am not surprised by any of that. So I want to say it now so that people have it in their minds kind of moving forward in this episode, that the research that I did for this story reminds me of the monastery Chimi Lakong in Lobesa, Bhutan, in which there is a huge amount of phallus-centric tourism and trade. And I think when I learn about tourism surrounding cultural practices, you know, there's always articles for and against it. And To my personal form of morality, I think it depends on who that tourism trade is benefiting and who's making the choice. Is the person who actually is part of that culture or part of that religion choosing to market whatever element they want so that they themselves can make money? Then that's great. That's their choice. On the other hand, is some other group making cheap keychains, notebooks, whatever have you about someone else's culture and selling it, then that's a whole different ball game. Yeah, I agree. And I also just, I don't know, there's that stigma around tourism that I think comes from 
you know, I never want to be seen as a tourist when I travel. And I think it's the, mm-hmm. the stigma of tourists being loud and obnoxious and inconsiderate and only interested in the flashy, shiny, nice things and not interested in the genuine reality of the culture, which isn't true. And I am a tourist, you know, when I travel, it's I am someone visiting a place, but um, I always have such a complicated relationship with that concept because as an American, I never want to be seen as a stereotype of an American. So like my pride and joy whenever I travel is whenever someone comes up to me and starts speaking the native language because they think that I'm just someone Mm -hmm. living in the country, which is not fair. I should be proud of, well, I I should be proud of where I'm from, but I think there are just a lot of stigmas around it. And I always want to seem like someone who genuinely wants to know the culture because I do genuinely want to know the culture. And I think tourist implies a surface level that rubs me the wrong way. Yeah. I've been very lucky. I have had the ability to travel for most of my life. And I've learned that, you know, the souvenirs, the things that I have kept from trips past are always the things that you know, they're always the things you have a story associated with. And for me, they're always the things that are happen to be made by artists or I love antiques. So sometimes they're antiques. And so in my traveling now, I've been trying to make an effort to buy things from local artisans Um, because I'm an artist and I know a lot of artists and it's an imperfect effort. Don't get me wrong. I still buy postcards and send them to my friends. And, you know, you have those things that appeal to your youthful sensibilities, as the voodoo quote pointed out. But, you know, when I went to Ireland, my favorite thing that I actually use in my daily life is a necklace from a silversmith from where we were. And it, I like it more because it was made right in the town that I was in. And it was worth the extra cost because... I have a great story associated with it. Right. Okay. Back to voodoo. <laughs> yes. Yes. Sorry. We we went off on a tangent. <laughs> as we do. So, as Ospe's article also informed me, there are no queens in voodoo either. Though it is a matriarchal religion, the proper term is actually mother. Still, we cannot discuss the history of voodoo in Louisiana without mentioning Marie Laveau, the so-called queen of voodoo in New Orleans. Some people might be familiar with her because she was a character that was featured on American Horror Story Coven. Just a heads Mm. up. I could do an entire story on her for an episode, and I would like to actually very much, so I'm going to keep this super brief. Uh, Marie Laveau was a free woman of color, descended from white French colonists, black enslaved peoples, and free people of color from South Louisiana. Combining voodoo with her belief in Catholicism, she gained political power and became a leader of a multiracial religious community. She led large public rituals and ceremonies in Congo Square, one of the few places in segregated New Orleans that people of various races could actually meet. She sold grigris, medicines and herbs, portended the future, and performed exorcisms. One local newspaper said, quote, 
the notorious hag who reigns over the ignorant and superstitious as the queen of the voodoos. Which is laughable on so many levels, because it seems that her services were also sought after by rich white folks too. Not to mention that hag is just always the name that people attach to so-called witches. I know. It's the first way that, that white men think to insult women. Just call her a hag. I'm a proud hag. I'm taking it back. <laughs> <laughs> Though she retired from her more public work before her death, she continued to care for the sick, poor, and imprisoned for her entire life. And she reached such fame that her obituary would appear in the New York Times, among other publications. To circle back, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, in an entry written by Elizabeth McAllister, who, by the way, wrote a book about Haitian voodoo called Rara, Voodoo, Power, and Performance in Haiti and its Diaspora, she says, Voodoo's fundamental principle is that everything is spirit. Humans are spirits who inhabit the visible world, and other spirits populate the unseen world. And one of these spirits is Baron Samedi, or Baron Saturday, if you translated the French, and he goes by many names. He answers to these different names based on the role that he is playing at the time. Baron Cemetier, the guardian of the cemetery, Baron Lacroix, the suave philosopher, and Baron Criminel. Look, wait, I'm sorry, Lacroix is in the drink? <laughs> As in the cross. That makes more sense. I didn't mean that he was named after the drink. Obviously, he's not named after the drink. But is it the same Lacroix? Oh, yes. Well, okay. So Lacroix, this bubbly drink, is named after a city, I believe, in Wisconsin. Um, you already is... know so much more than I do. I did not expect you to have an answer to that. It is a French word. So when people are like, mm, it's Lacroix, mm, it's Lacroix, I heard... And I might be corrected by some listeners on this, that in Wisconsin, Wyoming, darn it, uh, they say LaCroix for their city name, but the yeah. French obviously say LaCroix. So there you go, Tracy. Bubble water. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for the distraction. Uh, no. Continue. Uh, so Baron LaCroix is the suave philosopher, and Baron Criminel is an obscene murderer contemned to death and now a deliverer of judgment. So he is the Loa of the dead. And the Loa, to quote Wikipedia, are the spirits of Haitian voodoo and Louisiana voodoo. They are referred to as mysteres and the invisibles and are intermediaries between Bondi and humanity. Unlike saints or angels, however, they are not simply prayed to they are served. So even though this is an episode about gods of death, I chose really a spirit of death. And I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry either. It's a great option. <laughs> Baron Samidi is the head of the Gede, one of the most highly regarded Loa families in voodoo. They are linked to magic, death, and fertility. His wife is Memon Brigitte, a death loa with fiery red hair who happens to be the only white character in voodoo of loa spirits i mean she also has a taste for hot pepper rum 
Which is pretty fitting because so does Baron Samity and he brews his own drink, supposedly. He has a particular flair of dress, but I will tell you more about that in my story. So, without further ado. It is a dark night in New Orleans. The heat is thicker, wetter than I would like, and my fur has a silver sheen of dampness to it because I've sat so long on the wall in stillness. I stand, stretching and arching, my toes curling into the air. It's late, and nothing has come, not a mouse, a bird, even a person to startle. But as I blink into the blackness, ready to slink home to the warm house that feeds me, I hear a sound. Not like the kind of sound you would hear, mind you. It's something like a popping, soft like a blown bubble losing its form. It's the sound of Loa. My tail flicks in anticipation and I immediately dart down the wall and through the winding streets. For the most part, the goings-on of human beings is dull, or at least repetitive. All the moments you believe are important stack up to nearly nothing. And the noise. Why must humans go through all their mundanity in such clatter? The black hair rises on the back of my neck, just thinking about it. I imagine all the times strangers have grabbed for me, cars have raced towards me, brooms have swept me by. It drives me toward the nearest wall so that I might slink with extra caution. But the spirits in this city, mm, they are interesting. He's not in one of his usual haunts when he appears. I'm accustomed to following him down streets past bars. He'll walk up near a drunk and take the sloshing glass from their hand, finishing the drink that they're too inebriated to manage. Or he'll chew a cigar down by the water, luring beautiful women to his side. She clomps the sharp heels of her shoes on the street as he glides her away. Sometimes he appears with his red-headed mate. They'll dance and carry on in a gathering of his gede spirits that fill the night with laughter mortals cannot hear. They are raucous, debaucherous, <laughs> fun even. It's different from the noise of the people there's... Mm. I twitch at the thought. There's an echo to the sound, as if it will go on until the world stops. He leads them through the winding streets of the city in their celebration. I found him as a beggar, leaning against a wall in tatters, watching him with sparkling eyes to see which person will pay him any mind. I found him up to his neck in grave dirt as he digs the next hole for the deceased, sometimes commanding the lesser spirits like a king and grinning all the while. Tonight, he appears in his human face. His dark skin is painted with white and black to look like a skull, but sometimes he is only, or even half, a skeleton himself. The people he meets in death are particularly afraid of that appearance. Tonight, his nose is stuffed with cotton. 
I can't imagine how he goes about unable to smell, but as he swaggers around the corner, tipping his top hat to imaginary women, he sings a tune to himself. Then he turns into a large patch of seemingly empty land. I bound after him, following the flash of his swinging cane into the darkness, the tails of his coat flap in the slow, thick breeze. Once I followed him into a small, dark house far away from here. He had to duck to get in the front door. I looked in through the window and saw a woman crying up to him from the floor. There was a baby in its cage-like bed in the corner. They make so much noise, usually. I was shocked I didn't see it sooner. The tiny thing was lying still in its bed, a sheen of sweat across its miniature brow. The woman cried and cried, and I wondered if she would keep crying after he took the tiny human, but he did not. He smiled at the woman, cast his hand over the tiny thing's face, and disappeared out into the night. I watched at the window for a long time after that, wondering what the woman said to him so that he would heal her child. She looked unharmed. There was no blood, no other children taken in its place. When the baby cried moments later, she fell again to the floor, her forehead to the wood, weeping. That night, the Baron flashed his bright smile at every human he passed. I know they saw him because some of them smiled back. I've seen him do that trick of life-giving often since the night with the baby. Hmm, perhaps the takers of life may give it also. Tonight, in the Walden Park, he strides with a surety to a stone in the corner, the first one of many, I can tell. It's shaped like an archway and has writing on it a grave. Baron Samity digs graves for those he allows to die and comes back later to meet them when they rise. I've seen him refuse to dig the grave of a man hexed. The poor scared thing. The young man was walking around with the miasma of a curse clinging to his very being. I stay as far away as I can from those types when I see them. Everyone does. But that Baron wouldn't take him. Quick as a shot, he wiped the hex from the man and sent him on his merry way, shovel unemployed. But tonight, he sits upon the tombstone, chewing his cigar, occasionally casting a glance down to the undisturbed earth. But tonight, he sits upon the tombstone, chewing his cigar, occasionally casting a glance down to the undisturbed earth. He wears sunglasses with the right eye removed so that he might see the world of the living. With the shaded eye, he peers out at the world of the dead. I know the trick. Everyone but humans can do it. See the way a bird flies away in a hurry sometime or a dog barks at nothing. They are fools, but not as fool as you. A person walking around blind to the other side. This is why neither he nor I are surprised when the spirit of a man rises from the grave. He lived a long, 
happy life, I can see from the cracks in his skin. It takes him a moment to orient himself, but he isn't as surprised as many when the baron holds out his hand in greeting. This new spirit even joins in the Loa's rich, deep laughter. They stay like this for a long time talking. So long, I fear the sun will come up and I'll have to leave before I see the end of it. I've never seen a cemetery with only one person planted before. It's unsettling. The air around it is less filled with emotion and memory. So much space left lying in wait. I roll around in the grass for a moment to soak it up while I can. This feels like a beginning, the start of something that only I will bear witness to. When Baron Samity turns, the man does not follow him as the newly dead usually do. It shocks me back up to my feet just in time for the tricky Loa to come right by my hideout in the grass. He says, Careful, cat, or I'll dig your grave one day. I cannot understand his words, but I know the sound, the lightness buried under the tone. I sit simply and blink at him slowly. He laughs at this, throwing his head back up to the moon. I'll see you soon, then. He tips his top hat at me, and I turn, jumping between the slats of the fence, running home. The man he greeted, the spirit is always in that new cemetery now. He never leaves. The first woman they buried was greeted in the same way by Maman Brigitte, and now the pair of spirits guard the land together, filling in when the Barrett and Maman are not around. I don't mind the dead people. They're friendly to me and quiet. But Baron Samedi? I haven't gone out chasing him since. I only have six lives left, and I won't let him take another one yet. And this marks the first story that one of us has told from the perspective of a cat. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I have a reason. <laughs> yeah, tell me. I couldn't figure out how I wanted to tell the story, from what perspective. I really wanted someone to be seeing the Baron. And then the other night, while I was practicing my stick shift driving late in my neighborhood with Tyler, we came across five stray cats, a mom and her four babies. And they were eating some food. Uh, and the mom was just this live, very savvy looking feline. And her babies were plump and cute and fluffy and I just was thinking about how much they must have seen being out that late at night and there was a possum that came by while we were watching and it didn't even try to mess with the cat at all <laughs> a dear friend of mine also happened to get a cat with six toes this week polydactyl <laughs> Hemingway cats yeah when a cat has extra toes they're polydactyl yeah, so I just, there's, I've encountered a lot of cats lately, and I just said, you know, whatever, I'm telling this from the perspective of a, a stray cat. I love it. As you were telling the story, I kept glancing over my shoulder, because Lola um, is asleep on the futon in the loft with me, because she has to be with me when I'm recording. 
<laughs> and she, because it's hot up here because I have all the air and fans and everything turned off, she is stretched out as like <laughs> wide as she can be. Um, and she's sleeping on the back of the futon on top of two blankets and just, I mean, legs and arms just absolutely sprawled. Happy as a clam, totally passed out. I was out. wondering what you were looking at. Yeah, I was staring at her as you were talking because you were telling this story from the perspective as a cat. And then as the paranoid, anxious cat mom that I am, um, had to stare at her until I could make sure she was breathing because I decided she wasn't breathing. She was. She's fine. I don't think that the voice that I used for the cat in my story is the voice I would give Lola if she were telling this story. Oh, my God. No, that cat was way too cool to be Lola. <laughs> So the other thing that I was thinking about this week with this story and my research are the similarities between Marie Laveau and the Fox sisters, which is not to say that voodoo is fraudulent, as, you know, we talked about Maggie Fox later saying that their shows were. It's more going back to that idea, again, of marketing religion and spirituality and in this case, using it as a form to gain financial and political power. Right. It's a way for both of them. It was a way of getting independence and power in a time when it was almost impossible to do any other way as a woman, especially a woman of color. Yeah. And doing an episode about death, gods, I'm so fascinated by this idea of Baron Samity choosing not to dig someone's grave so they can't die. So is that what happens when he, he doesn't dig their grave? Is it they don't die or is it that they can't move on? They don't die. So he gets a choice. It's not that he is only there to shepherd people. He can choose what happens to them, like you said, with the baby where he spared the baby's life. Yeah, he has a considerable amount of power. He cannot dig someone's grave so that they don't die. He can heal people from any disease or affliction. I believe he can also grant fertility. So he has life-giving powers as well as death-giving powers. And at one point you said he's also able to remove hexes from people. Yes, that's kind of part of his ability to heal. It, it, and he's not... I think people, especially in America, which is predominantly Christian, try to associate him with evil and the devil uh, because that's sort of the structure in Christianity. But as one genius researcher mentioned that I listened to, you know, there isn't that structure in voodoo. There isn't a devil. And though he has kind of a wily personality he is not evil he's a wheeler and dealer but he's not pulling people down to the bowels of hell. right because i mean even there's also so many different interpretations of the devil you know there's i can't even get into it but no, I, I no you're right i think yeah there's just it's been so equated either through fear or different religious influences that if you're associated with death, you're evil and to be feared when in so many cases, that's just not the truth, especially with him. It sounds like he's this really f fun guy. Like he's got this really unique personality that isn't so serious that I think we always see. We see more often with this type yes. of figure. There's a lot of partying and drunkenness and a lot of the 
celebration that goes along with him is appreciating life while you have it. And it's cool. I didn't realize how much ancestors play a part in voodoo until I started reading about it. So ancestors have a huge part, at least in the continued stories of voodoo. I obviously don't really know about the day-to-day practice. So death... In, again, in the stories that I read, death isn't just this closed door in which you no longer have access to the spirits of people that have passed on. There's a great amount of respect and uh, shared knowledge, generational wisdom. It reminds me very much of some stories that I've read from China, actually. Mm, really? Yeah, and of course, now that I mentioned it, I can't think of a single name. Oh, of course. That's (laughs) always how it goes. I want to (laughs) die. But even... Okay, let's go with the the most basic examples that people will be familiar with. We have Mulan, which I'm not trying to say is the perfect historical representation of Chinese practice. That's not my point. But it is a video that people are familiar with and first kind of Americans got a taste of, oh, there are religions in the world in which ancestors have more of a hand in the goings-on. And then we have Coco, which came out more recently. Mm-hmm. And you get that journey of this through the spirit world in which, again, the young boy encounters his ancestors. And I was thinking of that Pixar movie actually a lot uh, while I was learning about this just because it had such rich imagery for me to associate with kind of the spirit world. It's crazy what we share, man. <laughs> it's almost like we share more than, than, the, than we have that separates us. It's almost like we are all one humanity. Weird. Weird, right? God, who? I mean, it's almost <laughs> like that, you know. Don't push it. Are you looking for a way to show someone that you care while still remaining socially distant? Why not send them a care package? Diamond Jewelry works with people and small businesses to create individualized care packages for any occasion. Starting at only $25, you can tell them what the occasion is, any specifics about the person it's for, and boom, they create the custom care package of your dreams. They'll even include a mask to help people stay safe from coronavirus. That is so cool. These care packages, guys, can include anything from jewelry to socks, candy, hats, scarves, books, puzzles, candles, and so much more. When Tracy surprised me out of the blue and sent me one of these care packages at the beginning of quarantine, my favorite two things were this amazing smelling candle and a tea that I am still trying to make last because I love it so much. (laughs) What did you tell them about me to have them send, like, the exact right things? It was so simple. I told them that you love vanilla and that you really love to curl up and be really cozy. And so they took that and, and knew that it meant that candle and tea was the perfect combination for you. At this point... Everyone in my family will send out care packages for pretty much any occasion, including housewarmings, birthdays, get well soon baskets, engagements, baby showers, and so much more. We love diamond jewelry care packages. So tell someone that you love 
that you love them by sending a diamond jewelry care package. That's D-I-A-M-E-N-T jewelry.com or diamond jewelry on Instagram. And don't forget to use the code willingandfable10 to get 10% off your order. Friends, be cool like Tracy. Send a diamond jewelry care package. To me. (laughs) So what's your story? Okay. So my story this week, um, Rowan will know I struggled so hard to figure out what to talk about because I knew what I wanted to talk about, but I felt like I couldn't do two stories from this same culture so close together, especially when they are really similar. Um, But then I said, hey, it's our podcast and we can do what we want. So (laughs) Rowan, I'm going to talk to you about Anubis, the ancient Egyptian god of the dead. Please hear this for what I really mean. The fact that you were struggling validated me in a weird way. I listen, I Tracy, I don't ever want you to struggle or be unhappy, but I the dark parts of my soul did breathe a sigh of relief. I was like, oh, thank God I'm not the only one who's struggling. Oh, my God. I struggled so hard. I went back and forth and back and forth. I don't want that for you. I really only wanted it to last as long as the brief text you shared with me (laughs) about it. But I'm glad you're doing this because truly you are my gateway to all things Egyptian as far as study goes. So it's for the best, really. Yeah, I'm glad I did this. Um, I kind of wish in some ways I hadn't done Osiris because he is also the god of the dead and it would have been a lot easier. Um, We'll get into it. But basically Anubis was too cool for all the drama of the other gods and didn't really participate in any of the stories. Every time. So we built this season... I don't know if anyone's noticed. I'm going to pat us on the back a little bit. We built this season to kind of have a flow from life to death. No biggie, we rock. Um, (laughs) So sometimes I'll do a story for one week and then we get to the next week and I go, why? Why didn't I I save it? it? I know. And we we don't look far enough ahead, unfortunately. Like we pick the episodes and then immediately forgot and then don't think about future episodes. So it's kind of what happened here, but I'm excited to talk to you about Anubis. So I'm going to start with a poem. It's I only took about half the poem, but it's a poem by Alison Green called Anubis. Dog-headed god of the dead, thy clawed hands drip blood red, taking souls to the weighing scale, watching closely as some win, some fail. Those that are light to paradise they proceed, but those that are heavy to Amut you feed. The feather of Mott is too light to defy what is in a soul and to justify. That is a poem called Anubis by Alison Green. Before Osiris was known as the god of the dead, there was Anubis. Anubis is an ancient and mysterious god who has nearly as many origins as he does epithets. Lord of the sacred land, the dog who swallowed millions, master of secrets, and many, many more. Before Osiris was killed and dismembered by his brother Set, it was Anubis alone who protected, guided, and judged the souls of the dead. 
But let's take a step back. All the way back to when Anubis first came into this world. Perhaps he was the son of Ra. Or, according to the coffin text from the first intermediate period, 2081 to 2055 BC, he was either the son of the cow goddess, Hestat, or the cat-headed goddess, Bastet. Another story claims that he is the son of Ra and Nephthys, but the most famous story of Anubis's birth is that he was the illegitimate child of Osiris and Nephthys. Osiris, Set, Isis, and Nephthys were all siblings. Osiris was married to Isis and Set to Nephthys. Set, however, could not get over his jealousy of his brother's success and murdered Osiris. What you might not know is that while Isis searched tirelessly for her husband's body, she learned of a devastating truth. Nephthys had borne a child to Osiris. Nephthys disguised herself as Isis, went to Osiris's bedchamber, and conceived a child. However, terrified of what Set would do should he find out about his wife's infidelity, she abandoned the infant boy. But Isis, she couldn't let a child go abandoned, and so she took him in as her own. She adopted the child, named him Anubis, and would forever become his protector. And at times, he would become her protector as well. When finally, Isis recovered her husband's body, or most of it, she had Anubis perform the first ever mummification process. Anubis had the body embalmed and was ready to perform the funerary rites when Set burst into the funerary chamber. Anubis would not allow his father's body to be taken again, and so, despite Set attacking him in the form of a leopard, Anubis fought him off. So angry was Anubis that he reached into the fire, pulled out an iron, and branded Set in his leopard form, thus giving leopards their spots. He flayed Set and wore the leopard skin as a warning against anyone who would dare try to defile the bodies of the dead. This is why priests would often wear leopard skins while attending the dead, to honor the victory of Anubis over Set. From that day forward, Anubis was no longer just the god of the dead. Osiris guarded the underworld while Anubis became associated with mummification. He was also known to help guide souls across the threshold of the living and into the afterlife. He brought them from the world of the living and into the presence of Osiris. He was often near Osiris now and quickly took on the role of protector and right-hand man to the older god, his father. Through this role as guardian and protector, Anubis was also present at the weighing of the heart. Once a soul made it to the Hall of Two Truths, it was time to see if they could pass on to the Field of Reeds, an afterlife of peace and safety. In order to make it to the Hall of Two Truths, the soul would be guided by Anubis. Dying was difficult, and when a soul first awoke in the afterlife, they were often disoriented and confused, and it was Anubis who would greet them first and help them begin their journey. 
While no longer the sole judge of the dead, Anubis assisted Osiris and the judges of the afterlife in guiding souls where they were meant to go. Should the soul be worthy, they would move on to the peaceful existence. But if they failed the test, their soul would be devoured and they would cease to exist. Anubis does not appear often in many Egyptian myths. Most say it's because he was too busy in his role as guardian of the dead to be bothered with the trivial, petty fights of the gods. He was dedicated, fully, to guiding, guarding, and judging the souls of the once living. Despite his lack of stories, he was, and continues to be one of the most famous, respected, and worshipped of the ancient Egyptian deities. After all, wouldn't you want to respect the god who ensures you get a fair trial when you die? Ooh. <laughs> That's, that is the closest I could get to a narrative story about Anubis. I thought about doing a first-person story kind of as someone waking up from the dead um, mm. and then truly got just emotionally overwhelmed by trying to research and write all at once that um, it just felt more authentic to myself to just kind of tell the story of Anubis's birth and his rise to becoming the god of mummification. You do you. <laughs> yeah. But we need to talk about a couple things. Go for it. First of all, you, uh, no one could hear me, but when he flayed Set yeah. in his jaguar yeah. form, I quietly cursed because that was a flaying just really. <laughs> does yeah, it. so yeah, yeah, yeah. So he he branded Set and gave him all of the black spots that a leopard has, and then took his skin and wore it. Um, and so that's why good design work, right? The other thing. Isis is such a good woman in all of these stories. She took in the illegitimate child her sister abandoned after sleeping with her husband. Yeah, and what I didn't include that in that is that um, Nephthys, basically she just thought Osiris was so handsome that she pretended to be Isis and then slept with him and then got pregnant and then gave the baby away. And then Isis found out after her husband died and then took the baby in. Whenever things like that happen in stories with gods, I always think, wow, if you're around forever and ever and ever, probably going to get up to some some naughty things. <laughs> yeah. And and Isis in, in these stories has really maintained that kindness. Um, she's very much a mother goddess. So she took in, in this story, and this story was told by Plutarch. It's kind of where it is known for coming from but it is the most famous version of the story and there are a lot of versions of this story where or there's just a lot of versions of myths and in most of them Anubis and Isis are really closely linked typically with Anubis becoming Isis's protector. A lot of the media and research that I've sort of devoured this week surrounding gods and death one of the things that surprised me most is that gods, because they have so much time, their obviously their perception of time would be different. So forgiveness comes 
either more easily or much less easily to them. Uh, by the way, I'm going to recommend Old Guard, which is an action movie on Netflix. If you just want to watch Charlize Theron kick some butt. I, say, I, I would watch Charlize Theron drink a glass of water for an hour and like call it good TV. I love you, Tracy, but I would watch Charlize Theron kick your butt. I would yeah. just watch. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> I would be smiling the whole time. So anyway, recommend, I highly recommend, I'm not going to spoil, but I, it was a part of my my media consumption this week. But just, if I were a god, I think I'd forgive more quickly in some cases because you don't have time. You have infinite time, but it's not worth holding the grudge. And at the same time, you have infinite time to be petty and hold a grudge. So I'm still, I'm just so impressed with Isis in, I'm not trying to be an Isis hype man every time you tell Egyptian <laughs> stories. Sorry. I'm sure I'll get to one where she's, you know, less than perfect, but. So tell me more about Anubis. Originally named Impu from the root word imp, meaning to decay, Anubis is perhaps one of the most immediately recognizable of the Egyptian gods. With the head of a jackal and the body of a man, he is the god of mummification and the dead. Do you remember in elementary school when you and I were convinced when we died we were going to get mummified? I wish I could say no, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about that the whole time you were telling the story. We, you and I were dead set. When we die, we're going to have to find people to mummify our bodies and put it in our will because that's how oh, it's yeah. going to be. Oh, yeah. I learned how to like write our names in hieroglyphics and I used to have that like... That, that hieroglyphics thing of, like, stamps, and it would show you, like, what each hieroglyphics sound was, and then it taught you how to, like, make that into other words. Yeah. I have a necklace of my name in hieroglyphics from that period of my life. Yeah. Needless to say, we were the coolest people on nope. the playground. Sure weren't. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The name Anubis came around as a Greek translation for his original name of Anpu or Inpu. However, he went by many other names. Lord of the Sacred Land, the Sacred Land being the, ne the necropolis. The dog who swallows millions, referencing his role as god of the dead. Master of secrets, since he was among the few who knew what happened after death. And he who is in the place of embalming, since he was the god of mummification. These are just a few of his many impressive titles. But he's not the dog that swallows people who have done wrong, right? No, that's actually not a dog. I know that's what you're talking about. You're talking about um, Amut. And yes. that is this creature with the face of an alligator, the body of something with fur, and then something else. I don't know it off the top of my head. I apologize to all of you who do and are screaming it right now. But More for is, a future episode. <laughs> yes. He's the one who waits, and if your soul, your heart, um, is deemed unworthy, eats your soul, and that means you no longer exist, which is the worst possible fate to the ancient Egyptians, because to them, death was just another part of your journey. You, If you passed through this stage, you moved on to a whole rest of your life a whole nother stage of existence but if you didn't you ceased to exist so 
what some people today might think of dying and no longer existing is what would happen if your soul got eaten by this creature. I'm trying to get business cards that say soul eater. <laughs> okay, continues. I'm sorry. I just wanted to clarify that for my brain. Yes, you're, you're probably associating that because he, um, Anubis is usually depicted at that ceremony with Amut. Mm. Mm-hmm. So Anubis was not the god of war, murder, violence, or chaos. He was god of the dead. He was a shepherd and a guardian of the souls of the once living. Protector, judge, and guide. He was Anubis, god of all things, death, and afterlife. It makes sense that his animal manifestation is the jackal, as jackals were known to dig up recently buried graves. Thus, as protector of the dead, Anubis took on the jackal form and enabled the Egyptians to create vast and secure tombs for their dead. Some think making Anubis's animal the jackal was a way to explain the animal's behavior. Others think it might have been an attempt to create supernatural power over the creatures. Regardless, what we think of as jackals today are most likely not the animal's that Anubis is meant to represent. His depiction is most likely an ancient Egyptian wolf instead of a modern-day jackal. This is because modern-day jackals are most often tan, and Anubis was always depicted as a black dog. This black color represented both his association with death, but it was also used at times to represent fertility because the color was really similar to the banks of the Nile River when it flooded and became fertile. Hmm. So I thought that was interesting because in your story, you mentioned Baron Samedi being associated with fertility and death. Same thing with the black represent the color black representing Anubis. Yeah, even, well, Demeter in the Greeks was associated with both fertility and death. It's... Not uncommon, and yet it surprises me every time. I know. It's fun finding these connections as we research further. Oh, yeah. Anubis is also known as the guardian of the scales, which makes sense given the devotion the ancient Egyptians had to Ma'at, or the concept of order. I spoke about this much more in depth in our episode about envy, but the feather used to weigh the heart of the dead was a feather of Ma'at and the weighing process was overseen by Anubis. To quote ancient.eu, The priests of Anubis were male and often wore masks of the god made of wood in performing rituals. The god's cult center was in Upper Egypt at the Kynopolis, or the City of the Dog. But there were shrines to him throughout the land, and he was universally venerated in every part of the country. Although he does not play a major role in many myths, his popularity was immense, and as with many Egyptian deities, he survived into other periods through his association with the gods of other lands. The Greeks associated him with their god Hermes, who guided the dead to the afterlife. End quote. In fact, this is my favorite fact, his association with Hermes was so strong that Anubis eventually merged with Hermes to form Hermanubis. Here's another quote from Wikipedia. What? 
In the Ptolemaic period, 350 to 30 BC, when Egypt became a Hellenistic kingdom ruled by Greek pharaohs, Anubis was merged with the Greek god Hermes, becoming Hermanubis. The two gods were considered similar because they both guided souls to the afterlife. The center of this cult was in Kynopolis, a place whose Greek name means city of the dogs. In Book 6 of The Golden Ass by Apuleius, there is evidence that the worship of this god was continued in Rome through at least the 2nd century. Indeed, Hermanubis also appears in the alchemical and hermetical literature of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. How do I not know about this? I had never heard of that before, but they just squished them together and said it's Hermanubis now. Sometimes when I learn facts about history, I feel like the world is pranking me. <laughs> there are some facts that do feel like you're being pranked. Um, so that, I thought that was so interesting. And, and especially the fact that Hermanubis really makes a lot of appearance in alchemical and hermetical literature all the way through the yeah. Middle Ages and the Renaissance. I mean, hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years after he was, quote unquote, created. The last fun fact I want to share with you is just something okay. more uh, etymological, just because I love mm, bring it. I love I love language. So the phrase by the dog refers to Anubis, and it was meant to invoke someone to tell the truth the same way we might say, I swear to God, or I swear on my mother's grave. You would say by the dog. Ooh, I would much rather say, I swear by the dog. All right, first one to use it in a sentence. Okay, the other fun fact, this isn't part of my research, it's just something I learned in Latin class in high school, and I think is so interesting. Um, you know how people, fancy people will say like, by George. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know where that comes from? I want to say it's a King George. It's not. So it is from the god Jupiter, Zeus. So the original phrase was by Jove, which was another name for Jupiter. And so it was by Jove. And then that got anglicized to by George. Hmm, I think we should bring back all of these original ancient phrases. Yeah, just start talking like we're some weird amalgamation of of first to, I don't know, 18th century <laughs> human beings. Right, but we're still going to use shampoo and deodorant. Don't worry, folks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I cannot give that up. I tried switching to natural deodorant for a few months, and in the beginning it worked, and then it just went real wrong. Hmm. Yeah, I can honestly say I've never made the switch. I did. Hmm. I, I know a lot of people who have successfully made the switch, so I'm sure there's a dozen brands out there I could try. I just, it never makes the list for me yet. No, it hasn't, but um, that can lead us into our something good. Ooh, okay. Tracy, tell me something good. <laughs> so I didn't know what my something good was until we just started chatting about this and then it clicked so I got to see my cousin and my sister and my nephews this past weekend and while my sister was up um, we were chatting about kind of natural all natural cleaning environmentally sustainable products and she, it's something she's been into for a really long time yeah yeah this, she does composting she uses natural products she uses um she doesn't use any kind of paper towels or anything like that 
And hmm, I've been learning okay. a lot from her. And so I signed up for a subscription service called uh, My Greenfill. And okay. I'm getting my first one in a couple weeks, but it's all natural cleaner, which I have a tricky relationship with things that are like all natural because they always start with like, there's so many like chemicals and they're like, the, you know, polyethyl, blah, blah, blah. And like, okay, everything well, is chemicals. Everything, everything is chemicals. So, but I, I do, I will, I'm excited to try these because um, my sister had to switch to this stuff because my nephew, everything else irritated his skin when he was a baby. Oh. And this is the only laundry detergent that, so they have laundry detergent. It's the only laundry detergent that doesn't irritate his skin. I'm getting their cleaning supplies. Um, I went and ordered a ton of these things called unnapkins, which I already have a few, but they are 10 by 10 squares of cloth and you use them the same way you would use a napkin or a paper towel, but then you just toss them in the wash. And the last thing I got more of are unsponges, which are these reusable sponges that you just boil once a week for 10 minutes and then you keep them and you reuse them over and over. And I've had mine for like two years, so I got two more because that one, it, it served its purpose well. Okay, well, you have to send me that link. I will get you the links, the cloth and the sponge I got from two different sellers on Etsy. And then my green fill is the website I'm getting my box of products from. So, Rowan. Yes. Tell me something good. Mm, okay, my something good this week. I thought a lot about it and I'm excited. I, I'm going on a complaining detox, which is... I've a, heard of those. It's such a mm, crummy, like, internet-y name for just, like, trying to be good. But I realized that a lot of my interactions with some of the people that I'm closest to are very complaint-based, and it's because a lot of the people that I love always work very, very hard. Uh, but I also noticed that I had kind of switched my perspective to thinking that I was being pragmatic and clever by seeing the worst in a situation. Like I was trying to get ahead of a problem. And in fact, I'm, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. And so even though I totally acknowledge that, you know, sometimes you just have to complain and get it off your chest, I am really endeavoring to not make my interactions complaint-based while simultaneously not being a jerk about it. I'm not telling people not to complain. I'm just trying myself not to complain. And I, Tyler's a very positive person, and he kind of brought it to my attention, kind of being around him. He, he's a very bright person, and I tend to get a little dark. So I'm yeah. trying to rise to the occasion We'll see how it goes. Yeah. And I think it's it's about, you know, if someone's coming to you and they're complaining, I think the way that I try to approach it as best I can, I mean, a lot of times I'll just give in and be like, oh, that sucks. It's terrible. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. But you can just say, like, that sounds really hard or right. that must have been really challenging or I'm, you know, I'm, wow, that sounds like a tough situation. I'm rooting for you. Um and then say, like, but at least, you know, like, that sounds like a tough situation. I'm rooting for you. Or if someone's just like, oh, I'm so tired and overworked, you can say, yeah, it sounds like you're working really hard. You deserve to take a break. Like, just bringing that positive into it. Um, it's something right. I actively work on, too. So it's acknowledging and validating their feeling 
and then trying to spin it into something they can see as positive. I also feel very lucky because I can call or text you and say, like, do you have availability for this? I just really need to vent or, you know, I need your thoughts on this. And you are emotionally intelligent to know the difference. You're emotionally intelligent enough to know the difference for when I'm coming to you for advice or when I just really need a second. (laughs) And also, we've known each other for long enough that we don't just throw things like that on each other quite as much. No, Uh, no, we don't. So so it's usually serious when we do. (laughs) Yes, yes. And I also don't feel like it's very much emotional labor to listen to you or a lot of people that I'm close to, like, help them through their struggles. It's really more those casual complaints, that baseline of just Right. If someone's saying, how are you? And you're like, oh, so tired. You know, I need need to drink some coffee or whatever. Or like, you know, those attitudes I totally get. And it's something that I need to, I need to be better about too. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so we'll see. That's my something good. It sounds like homework, (laughs) but it is my something good. Yeah, it's a po- it's a way to improve your outlook. Um, so we will improve our outlooks together while trying to help the environment. Look at us. All right, I I will make sure Tracy puts those recommendations in the list because I need them very badly. So, oh, actually, really quick before we go, I do want to say this. Um, we've tweaked the website a little bit uh, to kind of make it easier for you all. So. If we talk about recommendations, because we realize they don't always make it into the show notes, which is our sources for our stories, they're more academic focused, we've made a recommendation page on our website. We recognize that it might not always be perfect or comprehensive, but we're really endeavoring to get all the things that we talk about loving up on there for you. If we ever miss anything, you can always shoot us a quick message on our website contact page and we'll make sure to get it up there. But we tried to make a a happy little corner of the internet so you guys can like the things that we like if you feel inspired. Yeah. We are also really excited to read you some of your own spooky stories. So Mm -hmm. don't forget, you can always email us at willingandfable at gmail.com. It could be a spooky story, a murder story, a ghost story, a story of a time when you were really awkward as a teenager. Honestly, it could be anything. I just... Would love to read some of the stories you guys have been sending in. Yes, we we should talk about that. We're expanding it. We realized family lore is probably really rife with good info. You know, the legends, the big fish stories that grow in your own families among your friends. So it doesn't just have to be spooky, although we do love a spooky tale. Uh, so we're, we're still working on that. I know I hinted that you guys might get it in this episode, and I'm sorry, but it's proving to be a little bit more of a an undertaking than we anticipated we're not ready to give Story away. Of our existence <laughs> right right and final thing final 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 thing i promise so target put out their halloween collection lots of stores are starting to do it i know it's just becoming august but All you spooky folks out there are probably getting ready for Halloween just like us. We don't know what it's going to look like this year. Maybe all the adults will drive around and toss candy towards kids, whatever. God, what a nightmare that would be. I would love it. I'm so here for it. (laughs) (laughs) But the point is, Tracy and I are working really hard on a super good spooky series for you for when Halloween hits. So at least... 
your earbuds will have some Halloween goodness. <laughs> and if there are any themes or stories that you particularly love when it comes to Halloween, let us know. We are here for your spooky needs. Yeah. We, I mean, we'd rather make a podcast you guys really want to listen to. <laughs> it's kind of the goal. <laughs> All right, Tracy, take us home. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. And remember, stories grow in the telling. So tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon. Okay. so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes, or find us at Willing and Fable on Twitter and Instagram to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite listening source. And of course, join us next time for another round of ancient myths, local legends, and stories with staying power. <laughs>